the existing platforms are going to lose power over the next five years. You know, you've already got the rise of TikTok, Meta's falling, things just come out of vogue, similar to, to MySpace. I think what the problem is, is there's not going to be great attribution on marketing spend on these new platforms because they're nascent. And so I think something that people aren't thinking about is how do analytics and attribution around marketing spend on future platforms are going to affect these businesses. This is Media Moves, the podcast for executives to make sense of the perpetually moving media landscape. I'm Adam Ryan. Jamie, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we, uh, we talk all the time, almost on a daily basis, but excited for the world to hear a little bit of our jam sessions. But would you mind telling the audience uh, a little bit about yourself? My entire background has been at the intersection of media, finance, and technology. So I started off uh, as an investment banker, focused kind of specifically on TMT. And then I went to go work for a private equity fund called Saban Capital Group. The guy, Haim Saban, was known as the cartoon king in the 80s and 90s and was the number one producer of children's television assets during that time and made the Power Rangers really big. And so that really inspired me uh, initially around the power of IP and the different content strategies that you need to run in order to make IP successful. So I worked there for a couple of years. Then I became an entrepreneur, uh, started my first company that was in the consumer electronics space, which I wouldn't recommend doing. Uh, <laughs> it was interesting to say the least. It was an early iteration of the AirPods. A little uh, uh, higher barrier to entry than uh, media, huh? Yeah, higher barrier to entry. It was in audio, so I guess you kind of have that media link there. And we sold it in 2018 and then moved kind of fully onto the venture side. I was previously at a firm called Waverly Capital, and now I am a co-founder and general partner of Lightshed Ventures. So you've mostly been in the media during our time together. What I've like always been impressed with is that you have pretty firm beliefs. Like in the overall span of of venture investors, you're about a decade in uh, of investing, and not quite. But like I think your your belief systems are pretty rooted. What are some of your core beliefs of like how you operate as an investor in the space? Yeah, I mean, one of my core beliefs is really around niche media plays. And I think it just creates the perfect grounds for cultivating, you know, your core audience that is your, your most passionate, uh, consumer. And then you can spin out from there into a whole host of directions. But one thing that's really apparent is, you know, we always have this measurement of like, how does somebody truly love a brand? It's, you know, are they willing to get a tattoo of that brand? And so really finding that passion and your early advocates uh, is so important in the media space. What was the first like company or what kind of like brought that or a lesson or mistake that you made that brought that belief to, to reality? How'd that come to fruition? I would say it did start with, with Power Rangers. It was originally called Megaforce 5 over in Japan. Um, it was not known as the Power Rangers then. And it was one of the only shows over in Japan that just continually got played over and over again. And people absolutely fell in love with it. And this guy that I worked for, Haim, saw that passion when he was visiting Japan one night. And he was up at 2 a.m. because he couldn't go to bed. 
And he saw other people in the hotel watching this show and thought, wow, that's real passion. Let me bring that to the rest of the world and, and rebrand it. Yeah. The first off, I think I was a Power Ranger for Halloween, like at least three times. I don't, what color Power Ranger were you, Jamie? I was always the Red Ranger due to my hair, but I've been to the, uh, the Power Rangers trial runs where people go and try and audition to become a Power Ranger. And it's just hilarious. The characters that you could see going into that. It is a good example of like early media. I mean, Halloween costumes, toys, like they took that and spun it out to your point. Like it wasn't like niche B2B, but it was like niche child cartoon stuff. Uh, And, uh, and they spun it out into a million different ways. When you kind of are in your day to day, I think most of the guests on the show are operators, their heads down running businesses, media businesses, platforms, anything in the space. What's a day-to-day like for an investor in in the TMT space? I would say it depends, depending upon where you are in your fund cycle. So when you're just starting out, look, you're trying to meet as many people as possible. It's all about finding deal flow, meeting with as many entrepreneurs, trying to get pattern recognition for different deals that you're seeing. But as your, as your portfolio grows, you know, your responsibilities shift. Like you mentioned earlier, you and I are speaking almost every day. And I think one of the things that I really try and lean into as a venture investor is to be, you know, really heavy on the relationship side and try and true, be a true partner, you know, whether it's reading a newsletter before it goes out, uh, just to make sure everything is copacetic or to helping you think through different business decisions. Like I want to be there every step of the way in the early stages. And so, you know, you need to balance that with continuing to, to find new companies to invest in. You talked about pattern recognition, which we'll get to, we'll get to that in a second. I can't wait to dive in. But one of the things that people like myself struggled with uh, early and a lot of folks out there is like, how do you get in front of someone with a thesis of media, which isn't actually a huge category of investors. It's, it's a pretty small space. If there's a founder out there building a business that they think it's a perfect portfolio for light shed, what's actually a way to stand out in the crowd to, to catch your attention? Yeah. I mean, I think the first one is, is obvious, which is warm intros always help. You know, you get so many to whom it may concern emails or random things that hop in and, and personalization really matters, uh, and helps you stick out. I would say the other thing is we're seeing so much day in and day out and lengthy emails that take a long time up front to get into and read versus being very quick and bulleted with what your thesis is, what your core beliefs are, and what you want to build, uh, it just grabs the attention a lot better. Uh, do you want to tell everyone how uh, you and I met? Yeah. So you were shitposting uh, about Substack on Twitter. It was probably the first differentiated take on Substack right after the Andreessen round. And I was just so impressed I always am impressed by people that just have these really strong beliefs that go against the mold. And I just uh, slid into your DMs. Yeah. And uh, we started meeting weekly from there. And you've now been our our top investor since. So I for my takeaway for that, by the way, it's like I had no connections uh, to Jamie. I'm not in New York where you're based. Uh, we had no mutuals. I had no warm intro. But building your own personal brand on Twitter or LinkedIn, the barrier is incredibly low there. And being as unafraid as possible to be as honest of what you believe. That subsect thread has, uh, without a doubt, changed my life in, in numerous ways. All right. 
So you talked about predictions and trend spotting, uh, which is essentially your entire job. And what I want to get into is on a shorter term basis. So in the next 12-ish months, so we're talking May of 2023, what company do you think everyone's going to be paying attention to that no one's thinking about right now? Well, I would say I'm going to shout out to one of our portfolio companies right now, which is called Toucan. And it is a Chrome extension that helps with language learning. And it layers into your existing reading habits by being a Chrome extension. And it will translate every 15th or 17th word or some specific interval into a desired language. And so you can contextualize language acquisition around words that you do know with one word that you don't know. And really, I think why browser extensions in general are going to go through this huge growth is I think the Chrome store is probably one of the most underpenetrated stores left. And you now have Apple and Google starting to allow Chrome extensions or Safari extensions to live on mobile. And since all the usage or a predominant amount of usage is on mobile, that's just going to increase for all of these Chrome extensions. So I've been extremely bullish just overall on the Chrome extension space. And that's that's a change that's happening now. Yeah, the it was crazy. I mean, Chrome is amazing, but like, I don't know, the usage 70, 80% is mobile. So like not having the Chrome store be applicable to mobile was almost not worth the develop. They shifted that about, if I'm correct, to like four months ago or so, like pretty recently where they started to allow those apps. What's interesting about Toucan is that it's, you know, in simple terms, it just helps you learn a, a foreign language uh, faster in a more passive attention way. And that's one of my trends that I love is like, how do you capture passive attention that has active outcomes? And they've nailed it. Chrome extensions are like a great way to utilize that. But I'm always looking for like the passive attention to active outcomes. When you think about, let's say, 12 months before, so now it's May of 2021, year after the pandemic, what trend was happening in this last year that you feel like you just totally missed? Uh, I mean, the obvious one, which is crypto. And I would say it was partially on a fear of my own ignorance of not wanting, not having a great handle on all of the innovation that was going on, whether it's NFTs or DAOs or DeFi, and just watching all of the money just rush into that space. We were very slow on deploying capital, um, even though we wanted to. It was just things were moving at such a fast pace and we couldn't get our, our heads around it quick enough. So I do think we did miss a couple of the interesting opportunities in crypto. Looks okay now, but uh, I would say in general, we were slow. In what way, like crypto's like saying the internet in some ways. So like, can you be more specific? Like what are some things that you're like, damn, we really missed out on like that tech or that company? Like, is there anything specifically that you, that really excited you about the space? I would say um, utility-based NFTs continue to be very interesting to me. There's other businesses like SoRare that, that partner with sports organizations that I think are really interesting as these as these global brands try and unlock passion that goes kind of back to that that finding your most passionate audience. So I think those were areas that I would have loved 
to participate in, but we were just too slow on the uptake. The utility driven NFTs, though, for for what it's worth, I think they were pretty hot valuations at the time, and I'm not exactly sure the the overall market value. So maybe you catch the the second wave of that at a, at a better at a better place. I'm okay not being first. Yeah, just not last. It's, yeah, exactly. So something before I want to know a little bit of how you're thinking long term because that's that's half your job, but. I'd be not doing my job as a host of most of the people listening to this podcast run a digital media company. Going through Lightshed's portfolio, there's actually very few news or information-based digital media companies. Uh, I believe there's one, which is Workweek. But why Why not? Um, what are you seeing there? And there's this whole, before I hear you give that answer, it's kind of second follow-up is, you know, Jacob Donnelly and Brian Morrissey and a lot of the other kind of industry category leaders that, that I respect so much and have had on the podcast say, like, you just don't need venture for digital media. Do you believe that's true as well? Maybe in its current machination, that might be true, but these businesses always evolve and, and offer something new. I think they're they're right in the sense that it's been a very tough place to invest in long-term. Public markets don't really like it. Multiples are, are very low. And, you know, you need to have large headcounts for a lot of these digital media organizations, maybe Save Morning Brew, to go and be truly successful. Really what we focus on at Lightshed is finding companies that are orthogonal or parallel or tangential to the TMT space and can implement media strategies in order to help them grow. And that's, that's like, you know, for example, a company that we invested in called Space Perspective. It's a space tourism business that has absolutely nothing to do with media on the first look. But really what it is, is you're selling an experience and you're selling a brand. And being able to use and leverage media strategies to tell that story, to then tell consumers or convince consumers that this is something that they want to do, that's really where we find our sweet spot. You see media as a distribution opportunity, especially if you can find the passionate audiences around those. That's like what you're what you're looking at. Do you think that I, I don't think I mean, I think that's a great thesis and like it's something that I believe in closely if uh going back to episode two with preston from uh freight waves it's not not that different than he was talking about building a media company then you know sell software etc you are also at your core like you you understand news and like the traditional side you've you've been involved with that before do you think part of the lack of innovation in the space is like it's almost a chicken and egg is because there's not enough investor money flowing into it you don't need investor capital in order for innovation. A lot of these businesses don't cost that much to start up. So I don't really think capital's the issue. Um, I think that people are used to getting their news a certain way, or they're used to getting their content on a certain platform. And it's really difficult to displace that. And so, you know, look, you can call TikTok a media company and they made one very small change, which is just shorter videos on a loophole. Um, and they were able to, to hit it. So I don't necessarily think that it's a capital issue. Yeah. I mean, I think your consumer habits is actually the like larger issue is that if we like look at what TikTok did, they just looked at YouTube and said, let's do this, but shorter and faster and, and a better algorithm. And 
there, no one's done that on like the news B2B side yet where they're really thinking about like new formats. I think it's iteration versus innovation in trying to crack the, the media nut. Totally, totally agree. Kind of thinking about innovation, when you're planning out five years from now, it's 2027, Lightshit's funds, uh, first funds halfway through its 10-year cycle, a little bit more than, what do you think will be totally different in the media industry than that exists today? I think that there are going to be the potential for new platforms that are coming online, whether they're, they're Web3 related or otherwise. You know, you're seeing the decline of Meta, you're seeing Instagram kind of be in a steady state or a, a, a slow decline. And those people need to go somewhere. And so, you know, right now we've seen TikTok on the rise, Snapchat's holding up pretty well. But, I, you know, I, I do see the potential for, for new platforms, maybe ones specifically around games. I know there's a bunch of startups focused on that. Um, but I, I do think that they're going to be these, these new platforms uh, for media companies to live on. Gaming is something that you all have made some moves in, I believe, around like the Roblox play and a few others that you've, you've looked at. I recently told someone that I think consumer gaming is this like light into actually how consumer habits are long term. When you look at gaming companies, what are you looking for that you think like makes it so sticky and like not just a data perspective, but is there any like kind of tactics or, or things that you see through through building a, a gaming company? It's actually like pretty easy. I mean, let's just take Roblox for an example, which is effectively YouTube for the gaming ecosystem. It's funny enough, it's not really an IP or a narrative driven platform. It's mostly around game mechanics. And once you have the game mechanic that's fun, then you can build the IP and the story around it. So it's it's a completely different mindset coming in from a media space, which is all around narrative and story and IP and actually focusing on the crux of the game and then layering that stuff in later. And I think it's now I've been trying to figure out a fun way to bring this up as the fun fact of you. You are the co-founder of a board game driven company called Incredible Dream Studios, which is creating uh, various games and around game mechanics. What have you learned from that experience to help you make a better investor as building that company? Look, I think it, it reaffirmed my one truth, which was you need to go where the most passionate audiences are. And I think, I think of like tabletop RPG gamers is like the real hardcore gamers. These are people that are LARPing on their weekends. They're spending like 12 hour sessions doing Dungeons and Dragons in person. Like these are heavy, heavy fans that will just commit, you know, days and days to just playing through content and games. So that, that's kind of reaffirmed, which is you need to go where the most passion is. In terms of game mechanics, we invested heavily in the story and the the art of the games that we're producing. But I would say first and foremost, the first thing we did was the game mechanics. So I think that was kind of a learning that we had from from Roblox. I think like a lot of media operators would have like a hard time wanting to admit that, that like mechanics comes first above story. But if we look at Axios, that is actually what they did, right? 
that's all format is their, their secret sauce. I've said it a million times with podcasts, their secret sauce. They convince the best journalists in the world, write 125 words instead of a thousand. Like that's, that's it. So even like Axios local now, like they always lead with a fun fact, right? Like it's just something like that, that mechanically is there in every one of their articles. It's not related to any stories that are city specific. There's always like a little fun fact up front. So I, yeah, I agree. The mechanics or in media cases, the format, that's kind of the key. Maybe that's where some innovations of an iteration could, uh, could happen is, is thinking about the mechanics there. Uh, well, the work week podcast has one of the best mechanics, which is, or sorry, the work week newsletter, the perpetual newsletter where you need to forward it in order to unfuzzy those really interesting charts. That's, that's gamification in my mind. Um, so that's, yeah. that was a good innovation. Uh, appreciate that. And, uh, for those that don't know, we use Sparkloop with a attachment uh, there and uh, it allows you to gate content. I think referral programs are pretty stupid when it's like coffee mugs, but uh, at this point, but you gate some good charts that people want to see. They're happy to forward to one person. So when you're thinking about the platform changing and like that, that happening, what is the impact of those platform changes? Well, I think that marketing attribution is going to be totally off because you know, these platforms aren't built out. And so I think a lot of the analytics and the data that companies are going to be getting from these platforms aren't necessarily going to represent conversions as well as they could, click-throughs as well as they could, things like that. I would say that attribution and marketing analytics, I think are going to be way different in five years on new platforms. And probably an opportunity for some third-party vendors to have more like holistic agnostic plugins that allow for that, that's solely focused on it, where Facebook has so long dominated because they verticalize that across their piece. But uh, that also goes with the trend of the cookie disappearing next year and, and all that other stuff. Yeah, I was, I was speaking to an interesting entrepreneur this morning that you know made the case that a lot of marketers are overstating conversion rates. And he gave me an example of uh, on Google uh, AdWords, where if you if you type in restoration hardware and the marketing buyer buys the ad word restoration hardware, somebody clicks on it, they're overstating conversion rate because there was already an intent to go there. And so there's a lot of tricks that that marketing agencies do today to kind of inflate what true click through and conversion are uh, that I think you know will carry over into this these new platforms. Yeah, uh, well, that's also become a thing though to be fair to marketers, we're buying competitors' keywords. There's definitely a defensive measure to it. Yeah, there's a defense metric to that of like, you just, you almost have to call it like, it's Google's way of basically being like, you have to spend this to defend your own brand, which is pretty insane. But they should still split them out when they're doing the attribution to it versus uh, blending it together. Yeah, yeah. Rather than like winning on like middle funnel intent versus like hard bottom. Yeah, totally. And I think when it comes to publishers, We've seen the open data totally change because of Apple's policy, and that's going to continue to evolve. The cookie disappearing, Facebook, it's all wonky. TikTok doesn't have good metrics yet. Twitter still, it doesn't after 14 years. Media companies are kind of in this like limbo phase. And if my big takeaway of that is if metrics go away and budgets get shrunk due to market conditions they're only going to go back to the people that they can tell a good story to their boss to with like real data. And that's going to be a pre- pretty pro- problematic, I think, for publishers if they if they don't have anything like that. Yeah, that was 
somewhat similar to what you wrote in the most perpetual uh, newsletter a little bit, which I really enjoyed. <laughs> Plug. Uh, appreciate that. Thinking about down the road now, five years, what will be to you? You went over the difference of platform and analytics uh, shifting, which I think is it's a pretty spicy take saying meta might, might go down. Uh, and off, ca- off camera, you compared it to MySpace, which I thought was uh, pretty, pretty bold. Um, but what will you think will be the exact same in five years? Great IP. Uh, Disney will be Disney. Nothing will ever change that. I think there's a certain ingrainment that you have with everlasting IP, which is why it's so valuable. That just is very hard to get out of kind of public popularity. So I think that a great stalwarts like that will always stay the same. Yeah, I don't I don't disagree with that either, which it's funny because it goes hand in. It kind of goes against what we just talked about game mechanics and storytelling. Right. So I think for media companies, you have to have great storytellers and great IP. It's table stakes. But you have to have the open mind to be able to change the formats of that storytelling to match consumer habits. And like, I think that ego is what's actually holding most most companies back. Yeah. And and they're also at a little bit of a disadvantage because they don't have 70, 80, 90 years of history to lean on, particularly if you're a new upstart. So it just makes it uh, a more difficult proposition to undertake. Yeah. Jacob Donnelly and I talked about this. I said, look, there's no like there's not a lot of billion dollar media brands out there. Digital media is like not like Politico sold for that. Vice was valued at that. But now it looks like it's not even going to be close. And more or less, there's like very few 10 billion. New York Times now at 5.2 and it's 140 years old. And his point was like, yeah, but it's still so new. I think that's actually a really like digital media. The Times just switched a subscription 10 years ago. Like that's crazy uh, how new it is still. And so I think the with time as well, I do think the digital advertising budgets will continue to grow like crazy and even if Google and Meta and a platform still take the ma- vast majority of those, publishers will get a larger piece of that pie. Like it will grow over time. Yep. Last question for you. How do you apply what's changing and going to be the same in five years to your work today? Because in many ways, like I'll take work week, you wrote our first check to us in August of 21. In five years, we'll We'll be cruising, but we won't be done, right? But like, how do you how do you kind of use your beliefs for the future to make decisions today? How do, how how do you tie those together? I mean, that's a good question, and I think if we if we stick on work week for a second, I think you guys straddle so many of my core beliefs, which is niche, passionate fan base, check, and you know you have creators that service all of their their sub industries. And because you guys, you know, own or co-own the IP with these, these creators, you have the flexibility to move it in any which way direction. And you're not particularly beholden onto one platform. That was one of the things that was so attractive about Workweek was we're not just a newsletter service. We're not just a podcasting service. We're really going to create this full 360 machine that we can pump various brands and creators through to really help them monetize and you know expand their reach. And I think regardless of the platform that's going to be in five years, that strategy holds still. You may need to have another spoke in the wheel in order to do that. But overall, 
the machine is built to handle any changing environment, which is a thought was so interesting about it. So you're trying to find companies that are adaptable. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's what's so difficult is I think as an operator is because if you look at like Barstool, they've clearly just gone super hard in podcasting because they know it works. They have ad dollars there. They can turn into video clips, which sends their distribution. Like Erica has essentially said like, this is our channel of choice because like we know it works. Is it like massively risky to be one channel dependent? Yes. But like, it's also hard to not, it's hard to like diversify your focus. And so like, I think they're doing a great job today because they're growing, doing the platform that they know. But then from your standpoint, you're looking for companies that can be a little bit more adaptable than that. The other problem with Barstool is with any celebrity driven business, you're basically attaching your brand to some extent to Dave Portnoy. And so like, again, that's a very rigid structure. Whereas Workweek is very adaptable because you have a dozen different personalities and creators. So again, I think that's my my flexibility take versus something that's more rigid. And sure, that can yeah. that can work in like a great bull market. But you know, who who knows if podcasting ad dollars fall? Yeah, who, who knows? Yeah, and I think this is me giving my opinion of difference. When I was telling Workweek's story early on, I use Barstool as an example a lot of structure because it, in many ways, Barstool does have a house of brands. They have like different creators with different brand names and different podcasts and different IP that then like all are under this overall Barstool. And in many ways, like that's how like Workweek looks. But I was always asked, like, well, who's your Portnoy? And for us, I always said, like, I want 50 of them instead of one of them. And like a lot of a lot of people push back and it's like, well, we'll never work without like one North Star. And I think that is a mistake. And if you're like building a house of brands, if you're actually only known for one name, you're going to shift that reputation to them and you're attached to them no matter what, good or bad. Yeah, a huge amount of idiosyncratic risk. Yeah. And, and that to me is part of media is just surviving. I've realized like the best media companies have just lasted the longest, like they've survived and you have to have a strategy in place that like allows you to survive because like sooner or later, I think if you like last, you'll, you'll, you'll beat everyone else and and have the biggest, have the biggest numbers and reach and valuation, all that good stuff. Awesome. Any closing marks, Jamie, from you to this audience before we sign off? Well, I really appreciate you taking me out of hibernation of retirement for going on podcasting. I think I'll go back in for another seven years. So maybe we can do a uh, a repeat after then. A repeat. Uh, that sounds good. Well, I'll have you back before then. Uh, if you don't follow Jamie, he's at Jamie Lightshed uh, on Twitter. His uh, email is Jamie at Lightshed uh, VC, I believe, uh, dot com. And you can get in touch with them, ask questions. One of the smartest people that I know. And uh, I love talking to you all the time and always learn something new. So thanks for coming to the podcast. Awesome. Thanks, dude. Talk to you later. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to stay ahead of media's next move, then make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. I'll see you next time.